America has 2.2 million people in prison. If just 1% is wrong, that's 22,000 people. That's a lot of people's lives destroyed. If the system want to take you out of society, they will do it. No matter what laws they have to break, saying that they are enforcing the laws, but they're breaking the law. Having to hear those people say that I was guilty of a crime that I did not commit, and then hear my family break down behind me and not be able to do anything about it, I can't describe the crushing weight that was. I'm not anti-police, I'm just anti-corruption. A lot of times we look and we see something happen to somebody, and that's the first thing we say. That could never happen to me, but it can. This is Wrongful Conviction. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today, I'm very excited to have an amazing group of guests, and I'm going to save our star for the last introduction. But first of all, I want to introduce Seema Safi, who is an attorney with the Innocence Project in New York. Seema, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jason. And today we have a first on wrongful conviction. We have the brother of the exoneree here to help tell the story and to keep... uh, 
keep an eye on his little brother as well, right? So Jerry Hatchett, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thanks for having me here. And like I said, the best for last. So the star of our show is Andre Hatchett, who served 25 years in prison, not including a year in jail waiting for trial for a crime he did not commit. When you hear Andre speak, you'll notice that his voice is very low, and that's because of the fact that he had been shot in the neck prior to even having any of this stuff happen in the first place. Andre Hatchett enjoying his first real taste of freedom after more than two decades in prison. A judge overturned his 1992 murder conviction in the beating death of a woman whose body was found in a Bedford-Stuyvesant park. The only evidence in the case, the eyewitness testimony of a man who first told police someone else killed the victim and who fingered Hatchett when cops found out that first suspect was in jail at the time of the killing and couldn't have done it. The Brooklyn District Attorney's Conviction Integrity Unit cooperating with lawyers from the Innocence Project, who say Hatchett was also recovering from gunshot wounds at the time and was physically unable to carry out the murder. Attorney Barry Sheck says Hatchett's case shows that pending legislation on witness questioning should be passed. Hatchett was 24 years old when this all started. He turns 50 in May. Now Hatchett is surrounded by relatives who say they never lost faith, even as he became a victim of the system. Andre, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. Andre, let's go back. This was early 90s we're talking about. But even before that, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? How was your family life? Tell me a little background. All right. First, we came from down south. We moved in Long Island first in early 75. Me and my, my mother and my three brothers and my stepfather. So you moved up here when you were a kid? Pretty yeah, much, basically. Right? I was young. I was young. My mother used to work in the bicycle shop. I'm talking about my mother first. I missed her because she passed away when I was in jail. I missed her. I got PTSD. Yeah, yeah, I got that right there. So, so we grew up in Long Island. My mother used to we used to make money trying to help my mother because my mother used to well, she was single parents because she came up here, brought us up here. So she always tell us, "You ever get in trouble, son? You you know I don't go to jail. I don't visit jail. She got clothes folks. She don't have no money, and she, and she don't um, provide for us. You know." Don't do nothing, so I never did nothing. Get in trouble. I used to listen to my mother. You know, I've always been slow in education, you know. I can't read or write that good. Still is, but I'm working on it, though. So, Andre, yeah, so growing up, I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty happy child. That obviously yes. you had some, some learning disabilities. And I some, still do. Right, and some difficulties. But the fact is, um, you were doing okay. Things were all right. You had and, your family, you had your brother. Yeah, and then we moved to um, Brooklyn. As I got big, we used to pack bag at key food, shovel snow, anything to help my mother. So you're growing up, you're getting along, making getting it work, along, whatever. I used to pack bags at key food. As I got bigger, I went to the ice company. I was so strong, right? I was so strong with the ice. They used to call me animal. Jerry, you remember these times? Yeah, we, we was kids, like summer jobs. We would go there and help at the ice company because my stepfather drove the truck for the ice company. So we used to go there in the summertime and help out around there and worked with them. You know, work on the truck and helping everything. And I left, but Andre stayed around because I moved to Long Island and went and got a real job, you know. But he stayed on the ice truck working with my stepfather and them. So before this crime ever even happened, you were a victim of a terrible crime yourself, yes. right? Yes. I got shot. I don't know who shot me today. When they probably I was going to the store. I don't know who shot me. I got hit in the neck and and groin in the leg and the throat. And that's an important point. And yeah. Seema, jump in here for a second because 
This is what's so crazy about your case, right? We're talking about a crime that was committed on February 18th, 1991. The victim was a woman named Netta Mae Carter. And it is really a gruesome crime. It's like something off of uh, True Detective or one of those shows on TV. And, you know, if you can jump in and tell us a little bit about the crime and why it's so preposterous that anyone could have ever identified or prosecuted or convicted Andre of a crime that it is physically impossible Forget the fact that he had alibi witnesses and everything else, but it was also physically impossible that he would have committed this crime. So the victim was, like you said, a 38-year-old woman. Her body was found in a park in Brooklyn, and it was 11 o'clock at night. It was a drizzly, rainy scene, and it was, this is going to be pretty graphic, but her body was found, her skull was exposed because of how badly bludgeoned she was in the head, Her teeth were knocked out of her gums. Her body had been dragged across a distance. Her clothes were found strewn across the park. Her vulva had been ruptured when she was examined at autopsy. And her body was placed in a position that the DA's office ultimately, when they exonerated Andre, described it as sort of like it was deliberately placed in sort of a crucifix-style position. And so whoever committed this crime had to inflict a significant amount of force to have done this. And there were three metal pipes found in the vicinity of her body, which were believed to have been the murder weapon that was used to bludgeon and sodomize her. Andre was in a cast and two crutches on the night of the crime. The victim's own mother testified that he was using crutches on the night of the crime because earlier that night he was with the victim because his aunt lived in the same rooming house as the victim and the victim's mother. So he would visit his aunt almost every day. And occasionally he would chat with the victim, watch TV, borrow her mother's records. And so they were acquainted. And so later that night, the victim went out. I think she went to buy some drugs. She never came back home. Andre left. He had an alibi for the rest of the night. Even when the cops interviewed him, they let him go because he had a solid alibi. Now, what was chilling is that there was such grave defense counsel incompetence in this case, that his first defense counsel was deemed ineffective by the trial judge. And so the trial judge said, you are so incompetent, I'm going to give this man a second trial, because he didn't even present his alibi. He didn't cross-examine witnesses. He had a hearing impediment. So he gave him a second trial. His second lawyer was someone who was suspended from the practice of law for a period of time in the 80s. Neither lawyer ordered Andre's medical records to show that it would have been physically impossible with his condition to have committed this crime. And all they needed to do was make that clear to the jury. They never did. Well, going back to his first attorney, me and my mother was in the Supreme Court, downtown Brooklyn. And um, like I said, we never been in trouble before, so we didn't know what lawyer to get for no case. Me being the oldest, I'm trying to do anything to help my mother because she's high blood pressure, health problems. So you see a guy in the Supreme Court and... He said he's a lawyer. I'm like, how much? I paid for his first lawyer, right? Mr. Panza, I paid him, I think a couple of thousand dollars down to try to help my mother out. We get in court, like he said, the judge is just, I'm in court. Me saying, 
He didn't do it. Check his medical records. I'm telling me, his brother's telling the judge this. Check his medical records. It's impossible. And they didn't even listen to me. They was like, oh, you got to go to the bar association to get your money back. And I told the judge, I paid this guy. And the judge like, you paid him. He was a legal aid. But I didn't even know that the first lawyer was a legal aid, that he wasn't supposed to charge me. I'm trying to do anything to help my brother and my mother, you know, out. So I didn't know. Let me go back a minute. So when were you shot, Andre? I was shot at 1990. It was going into the wintertime. So you were shot not long before this terrible crime happened. And this yeah. crime is as terrible as it gets. Yeah. And when he was shot, he got shot in his leg, and he had to take a bone out of his hip, out of uh, his hip and put it in his leg, right. and he had screws in his leg. Like an antenna rod, like a so, cable. So when the cops questioned him, he actually had the cast on his leg. Yeah. What was the circumstances? Where were you going? It just came out of nowhere? I was going to the store, just going to the store, passing like a block, and they just started shooting. Somebody, dogs got killed, other people got shot. I don't know who shot me, back to the day. And that's one of the things with this case that troubled me so much from the first time I became aware of it, is the idea that in it's unusual that you have a case that's seemingly so totally open and shut that literally a sixth grader could have represented you and said, Your Honor, this can't be, this is not possible, right? You cannot drag somebody as this body was dragged. You could not have committed this crime in any of the things that were said. As we'll find out later, the whole system failed you. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So you were shot, and then how did they end up even coming to the idea that maybe you could have been the one that did this? I don't know. She lived in my aunt building. She lived in my aunt building because I go there because my aunt lived there. She passed away too. She, my aunt named Angie. Angie Hatchie. I mean, this is, my head is spinning. Every time I think I've heard it all, I hear a story like Andre's and I'm like, okay, this is just, uh, I mean, as you described that crime, and it's as gruesome of a crime as there could be. And the idea that they would willfully prosecute somebody who they knew were innocent, because anybody would have known he was innocent, and leave that guy who's a true monster on the streets to potentially do this type of thing to another innocent person. I mean, what what am I missing here, Seema? This is insane. So Andre and the victim were acquaintances, as Andre mentioned. She lived in the same rooming house as Andre's aunt. When Andre would visit his aunt, he would sometimes talk to or, you know, watch TV with the victim. And he was with the victim earlier in the evening that night. And the victim asked Andre to borrow a couple dollars. So he gave her three dollars. She went, she bought some drugs. She came back, smoked in the house. She borrowed a few more dollars, left again, never came back. Andre didn't see her. Andre waited for her with her mother. And then after about half an hour, Andre left again. And then he had gone home, spent some time with his cousin, watched some TV. He remembered the TV show he watched, went to bed. And then her body was found later that night. Now, the mother was interviewed by police. She said, the last person I saw my daughter with was Andre Hatchett. Police interviewed him the next day. He had a solid, detailed alibi. They let him go. Eight days later, a man named Jerry Williams gets arrested for an unrelated burglary. Now, Jerry Williams is in the bullpen at the precinct, and he tells cops, hey, I have some information about that high-profile murder that took place in the park in Brooklyn. And he described the person. He said, I knew him from the neighborhood. I knew him from soup kitchens. Now, Andre had never been to a soup kitchen because he was on SSI. He didn't need to go to soup kitchens. And then he starts describing the person. He says, I saw this crime from a distance of 40 feet. It was a rainy night. He said... I heard someone make a deep scream. I was with my friend named Popeye. So he said, then Popeye yells out, are you okay? Because they see a shadow of someone with something in his hand swinging his arm on the ground to a body on the ground. And so Popeye screams out, are you okay? And they said that a man screamed back, stepped the F off in a very distinctive voice that could be heard from a distance of 40 feet. So then this guy, Jerry Williams said, And I think the guy is someone you know. I think he was a suspect. He has crutches. So he knew that Andre had already been cleared by police. And he started to describe this person as in a way that was very consistent with Andre because Andre had crutches. So Jerry Williams had a very distinct 
reason to want to be helpful to the police, right? Because he was a suspect in a burglary, had been arrested for a burglary, right? So he's sitting there going, hey, I got an idea. This is a crime everybody's talking about in the neighborhood. If I can be helpful to them, they'll be helpful to me. He doesn't care about you, Andre. So he's like, yeah, let me just try to give up some bogus information and tell a story that they're going to want to hear. And then uh, maybe they'll let me go home. And what's interesting is right after that description police go and get Andre to conduct a lineup. Andre voluntarily goes back to the police station. They do a lineup. Jerry Williams identifies Andre. Andre wasn't arrested. And what we later found out, which was not presented at trial, was that the DA directed the cops not to arrest Andre, even though he had just been identified in a lineup. And the document that we retrieved said, according to the DA's office, there was insufficient evidence to support an arrest. So clearly there was some concern about this man's reliability. Now, this man was the star witness for the prosecution at trial. Jerry Williams was a crack-addicted drug dealer with 30 prior arrests. That is the only witness. So what happens after this lineup where Andre gets to go home, Jerry Williams, who has this burglary arrest, is released the next day. And he voluntarily offers to help police find Popeye, this other witness that he claims witnessed this crime. So after many efforts, they find Popeye. Popeye comes in. They bring Andre in to do a second lineup. Again, Andre voluntarily comes in. And Popeye identifies Andre in the lineup. And he is ultimately arrested. Now, what is, again, not addressed at trial is the fact that Popeye had initially chosen someone else out of the lineup, not Andre. Now, Popeye never testifies at Andre's first trial, never testifies at his second trial. The only person who testifies is Jerry Williams. Who's the guy who has the motivation to want to lie because he walked out on right. his 31st arrest. Yeah. Jerry, you obviously remember this like and it then, was yesterday. Yeah. yeah, because they didn't arrest him. He was going back and forth to the precinct. But by the time he did go to trial, they made sure that he didn't have a cast on his leg. Wow. So in front of the jury, like this guy was never shot or never hurt anything. And when the guy said he screamed, he got shot in his neck and his voice box. He couldn't even, he couldn't even barely talk. So it was impossible for him to scream. It's impossible for him to scream. It was impossible for him to commit the murder. It was impossible for him to drag the body. All of it was impossible. So Ferguson, the police name, he kept going, I'm going to give you a lot of tech to test. I'm going to give you a lot of tech to test. He never gave it to me. He told me, don't skip town. He rest me. Don't skip town. Just study going back to the precinct, study going back. Then he said, um, to one me, look at a mugshot book, right? So you know him, I'll let you go. But he never did. He, he never did show me a mug. He tried to make me pick somebody out of the mugshot book, trying to do the same thing when it, to me, what they did to him. Because then they questioned him, oh, I picked him out of the mugshot book. He said, they'll let me go. I went in. I said, I didn't do nothing. So I didn't do nothing. So I kept on going there, going there. Don't skip town, Mr. Atchett. They came came and got me. Then I come back from my, from my friend, from my girl. Walked to my mother's house, from Shirley house, right? So the cops ran up on me, locked me up again. He said, you're on the rest. You're about to shoot me in the back, Ferguson. I said, for what? For the same case. They let me go and. Then they came back and gave me 30 days later for something I ain't Now, one of the main questions at trial was what happened to Jerry Williams's burglary charge? Nobody don't know. Exactly. Now, Jerry Williams was, you know, by any sane estimate, a clearly unreliable witness. He had 30 prior arrests. He had 20 prior convictions. He went through 
every single disposition of every prior conviction he had from the 70s up until the day he testified. He remembered the disposition of every single prior arrest except that burglary. So the judge asked the assistant district attorney what happened to that burglary charge. And she claimed that he was arraigned on it and she would check during the recess to figure out what happened to the charge. There was nothing on the record to show that she ever checked. And so there was a question as to whether he got a deal in exchange for testifying for the state in this high-profile murder. And he testified at trial. He never got a deal. What was uncovered by one of our Cardozo Law students after the Innocence Project took on Andre's case is that that arrest for that burglary was what's called 343 Now, we don't really know what 343 means, but there was some decision made by somebody not to go forward with that arrest. And so when we went to the conviction review unit at the Brooklyn DA's office, that was one of the things we wanted them to look up. What they ultimately ended up finding was something very different that was withheld from Andre's attorney. But that was a very significant loophole or gap at the trial is what happened to that burglary charge. Because this man could not, from a distance of 40 feet, have seen someone commit this crime and certainly to claim that he heard Andre, a man that he conceded he never had a conversation with, to claim that he screamed from a distance of 40 feet, step the F off, makes hardly any sense when Andre could barely speak at his own trial because he had just been recently shot in the throat and was recovering from a gunshot wound. And so Jerry Williams claimed that he recognized Andre by his voice, even though he had never once spoken to him, and that he could hear him scream from a distance of 40 feet, even though Andre was barely audible at his own trial a year later. These are things that you would think you would hear about in a third world country. And this is New York City. It is frightening how easy it is to convict an innocent person in the United States. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than this. So... Let's go to the trial because this is, first of all, it's so troubling because your entire life is at stake in this trial and the government's entire case rests on one witness because there is no other evidence. There's no physical evidence connecting you to the crime. Tell me about that. I I never saw this guy for my life. I didn't even know he knew her. He said he he used our lookout. He threw girls in the dust and all that. Jerry Williams is who Andre's talking about. And Jerry Williams, even at the trial, he testified that he had all these prior convictions. And one of them included throwing a girl in the dumpster. This guy, Jerry Williams, is a terrible, terrible character. He's a blight on society, right? I mean, 30 arrests, it's almost comical to think of somebody being arrested. That, and 20 convictions, and here he is on number 31, and one of them included throwing a woman in a dumpster. And he also claimed to have seen Andre, a man that he admitted he just knew from the neighborhood, but he did not recognize that the woman on the ground was his friend who he had used in five prior burglaries as a lookout. So how is that conceivable. Yeah, Andre. Then, if you see something, you'll go straight to the police and say, I seen him. Yeah. And but what, you get caught with a burglary and put it on me. And what's weird about this, too, is that it would seem like this crime would be solvable, right? When you have a crime of this extreme violent nature, this is a crime that's so personal and so vicious that it's not unlikely that the perpetrator knew the victim, because otherwise, who would do something like this? I mean, this is a very rare situation. And the question as to who would do something like this, there is a viable claim that Jerry Williams was the real perpetrator. 
well, the was, victim was actually known to exchange sex for drugs that was presented at trial. Jerry Williams was a crack addict, and he could be as good for this crime as anyone else. And they say he threw people in the dumpster. That would be a tip-off. I mean, as an American, as a human being, all I can do is apologize to you, Andre, and to your family for you know, what was done to you because it, it just defies the imagination how people who we're paying with our tax dollars to do their jobs could fail you so totally on every level and fail society too because this guy was allowed to remain free to prey on somebody else's sister, mother, daughter, brother, anybody, right? Jerry, yeah. And then I think, what they offer you, 47? They offered me a 49. Yeah, they offered him a 49 for a murder case. And I remember my mother in court was like, because he had spent a year, he actually did 26 years in jail because he had spent one year on Rackers Island with two trials. And he did 25 years up north. And I remember my mother was like, Andre, you've been in here almost a year. Just take the four to nine. She said, because I'm not going to be living in 25 years when you get home. He looked at my mother. He said, Ma, I did not do it. And, and Seema, let's talk about that for a second, too, because there's no prosecutor that's going to look at this case, which is so violent and so vile, what was done to this poor woman, and say, you know what, we let this guy out in a few years. We're going to give you a good deal. Nobody's giving you a good deal if they think you actually did it. That's offensive as well. Yeah. I said, Ma, I hate to say that. I can't do it. And, and, and I think and that's why I got PTSD today, because I think about what my mother told me, and she wasn't living when I came home. But I wasn't no take. I said, Ma, I'm sorry. I, you know, that bothered me right to the day. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on... 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So the trial finally comes. You've been in Rikers Island, which is hell on earth for a year. And finally, your day in court. And how long did the trial last? The, the second one, it didn't last too long. It was just a couple days. A couple days. A speedy trial, whatever they call it, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I've never been to jail. No, okay. The witnesses were the prosecution's one and only claimed witness, Jerry Williams, the detective, the victim's mother, who wasn't there, didn't witness the crime. And you have his defense attorneys who even the Brooklyn DA's office, the chief of the conviction review unit, got up in open court on the day of his exoneration and said the fact that they did not order and present his medical records was unconscionable. It is unconscionable. And so, Andre, when the the jury went out, right, and were you thinking at that time, well, they're going to see the obvious truth and they're going to know I'm innocent and they're going to come back in and call me innocent and, and, and declare I, me innocent? I mean, I always knew I was coming home. I, I ain't never give up. I, I never give up. The police try to get me sign a statement. Ferguson, I never did. Cause my mother said, boy, I don't care what you do. You don't sign that. You don't know how to read and write. When every system and every agency that you come into contact with fails you, which is the prosecution, the police, and your own defense attorneys who you put your life in their hands, how do you expect the jury to acquit? So the jury convicted you, and you were sentenced to? 25 to life. 25 years to life, which is really a life sentence because unless you admit guilt, you're not coming home anyway. That's a crazy thing in our system. You plead innocent, they send you to prison. You plead guilty, they send you home, right? I mean, that's an oversimplification, but it's kind of a crazy paradox. So... You got convicted. I mean, that moment must have been the worst moment of your life. Oh, man. Yes, it was. You know, I I just couldn't hardly cry. I couldn't cry because I couldn't believe they lied to me. I told the judge I'll be back because I didn't do it. They said, you got anything to say? I said, I'll be back. I didn't do it at the end of the court. And the judge was actually trying to assist at the trial because his own defense attorneys were doing such a shitty job. I was in court when the judge said 25 years of life. My brother said, I didn't do it. And the judge looked at him and said, I didn't do it neither. Yeah. The judge said, the judge I didn't said, do it. I didn't do it neither. What the hell? I swear. My yeah, brother I'm... told the judge, he said, Your Honor, I didn't do this. He said, well, I didn't do it. Just like that. That sounds insane. Yeah. So, Andre, you're in prison for, for decades for a crime you didn't commit. 
dealing with all the difficulties related to your physical issues and other things, you know, related to having been shot. You have your, your disabilities, learning otherwise. I'm just trying to understand because I'm always amazed by people like yourself and how you manage to go through this unbelievable ordeal and still come out on top and still maintain, like I said, you just surviving prison. I know you were stabbed in prison, right? Right behind the ear. I got, I got assaulted a lot by police because of my case. I can't read or write. They put me in a box for nothing. One time they beat me so bad, I hate to say that. I never told her that. And Clinton, I do do all on myself because I wouldn't call him daddy, the police daddy. I wouldn't call him daddy. I said, you to kill me. You know, you to kill me. I'm not calling you daddy. They beat me so bad, I do do all over myself in Clinton. Jesus. Um, they gave me, in Greenhaven, they sought me. Everywhere I went, I got sought by police because I couldn't, I didn't let them talk to me any kind of way because they respect me, you know, they beat me up so bad. Stat beat me up. One day, my son died, right? Laundry, 2014, right? I was crying. You know what they did? They gave me a, a, a hound dog shot because I was crying. I wasn't violent or nothing. And it almost paralyzed me. What the hell is a hound dog shot? A sight mask. The strongest one they had, a hound dog. The one in the CO, it was some good CO. He said, will not you just take him back to his cell? He, he, what you do if your son died? One CO stepped up on me, but the other CO overruled him, and they gave me a hound dog shot. Oh, man. It's just it just sad, man, because I never did, because I couldn't read or write, you know. I, I couldn't write no grievance or nothing, you know. They put me in a box, kept on putting me in a box, you know, just being, just being on me, you know. It was difficult for Andre to express himself in writing and write any grievances so I, in the yeah, prison. I couldn't do it. And so it led to a lot of altercations with guards because he wasn't able to file grievances. He wasn't able to express himself in writing because of his limited abilities to write. And so... It led to a lot of altercations with guards who were horrible to him. I mean, it just is really, um, I mean, here you are, your son died. Probably the worst thing that anybody could experience ever would be to have your son die and you're in prison for a crime you didn't commit. I mean, that's where my, my head is actually exploding from this information. And then instead of like actually having a human bone in their body, and being like, let's give this guy a little bit of space or a little bit of, of kindness, something where any human being would feel empathy for somebody who lost their child. And instead, they're going to they're going to I mean, I, I just I'm 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 stuck for an answer. And then in 1992, he was in there for a couple of years. My younger brother he passed away in Cancun, Mexico on vacation. He drowned. The undertow took him. And then in 2001, our father passed away. And then in 2005, our mother passed away. And in 2014, he lost his son. So when he got out, all my father, brothers, and sister passed on my father's side. All my mother, sisters passed except one. A lot of the family was born while he was in jail. Right, so you always had to get to know your own family. Exactly. And all, yes. all new people and everything else. Yes. But, but Andre, so the good part of the story is that you're here, right? And I want to talk about how that happened and the role that the Innocence Project played. It was as hopeless as it could be, and then things turned around. Can you explain to me how that happened? Um, my friend, you know, I couldn't read it, right? He used to always write my letter. He said he just fell out the application. He said, you always talk about, I know you ain't doing it, because I told him what happened to me. And he did the application, showed me how to get there to the Innocent Project. You know, I forgot his name. His name is actually very ironic. His name was Duh 
Andre yeah. Williams. Yeah, that's and DeAndre Williams wrote a letter to the Innocence Project, I believe it was 2002, saying, on behalf of my fellow prisoner, he can't read, he can't write. His family and I would really appreciate if you would look into his case. There is DNA evidence that can prove his innocence. Will you please take his case? Yeah, I'm actually looking at the letter right now, and it's giving me chills to think that this guy came to your aid when you most needed it. And ultimately, the Innocence Project did take your case. So, Seema, talk about the, the evidence that came out and how this led to what should have been a very obvious conclusion 25 years earlier. So when the Brooklyn DA's office's Conviction Review Unit undertook this reinvestigation, this was after... We had searched for, and I say we, but it was my predecessor, Jason Craig, at the Innocence Project, who searched for DNA evidence. DNA was tested under the victim's fingernails. It didn't pan out because no male DNA was found. Those metal pipes were searched for. No one could find the metal pipes. And so this became a non-DNA investigation. And the Innocence Project takes on cases, as you know, where there's DNA and DNA can prove innocence. But Jason truly believed in Andre's innocence. And he said, we can't close this case. And he wanted to bring in a big law firm. So the head of the department agreed to bring in Paul Weiss, which is a fantastic Manhattan law firm. They ended up doing an investigation. They did a FOIA, which is a public act uh, records request for the DA's file and the police file. And ultimately what happened is when the Brooklyn Conviction Review Unit reviewed this case, they found a document. And it was a document that we received in the FOIA production. But the FOIA production showed just that on the night Jerry Williams was arrested, he saw a man in the bullpen, in the precinct, and he said, that's the guy who did that Monroe Street Park murder. Andre wasn't in the precinct. Now, what the FOIA production didn't give us was the cover page of that memo. The DA's office found that cover page in their file from 1992. That cover page said that there was a person who was called the defendant in the bullpen, and Jerry Williams identified him to the cop as the real perp. Now, the defendant is sometimes listed as unknown, or in the case, if the suspect is Andre Hatchett, it would say Andre Hatchett. It said James Pringle. There was a man in the bullpen named James Pringle, and Jerry Williams pointed him out and said he did the crime. So police looked up James Pringle, and we had the FOIA document, but it was redacted, so it didn't tell us what happened. The DA's office had that document, and it showed that James Pringle, his incarceration records were searched by the cops. He had a solid alibi because he was in prison on the night of the crime. So Jerry Williams points out another man as the real perp of this crime who couldn't have done it because he was in prison, and that was never disclosed to the defense. That would have shot the man's credibility And the DA's office said even the morons who represented Andre would have used that evidence to show that this man is not credible. Because of that fact, as well as another piece of evidence showing that Jerry Williams admitted that he was on crack the night of the crime, which also wasn't disclosed and would have showed that he committed perjury at trial because he claimed that he was not on crack in the night of the crime. Because of those two pieces of evidence, which were not disclosed to the defense, which would have cast incredible doubt on Jerry Williams's testimony, this conviction was overturned. Because when you have a single witness ID, which is the only basis for someone's conviction, credibility is everything. Yeah, it's just, the whole thing is unreal. And and I've been doing this stuff. uh, I mean, I've been involved in this fight for almost 25 years. And and like I said, when I think I've seen everything, I've run into somebody like Andre and and hear this story. And it just, it's just, 
my my heart hurts and it's uh, it's horrible. But Andre, so how did the exoneration happen, and what was that like? Because I like I said, I remember seeing your face, and it was, that... like, it was like 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 gold because I got out of hell. I got out of hell for something I ain't do, and this particular dude, he passed away in the cell in Green Haven. DeAndre. Yeah, he passed away. I used to always cry to him. He said, man, I, I'm going to get you on. He took all my paperwork, my minutes. I gave him all my paperwork I had because I went through all the pills with the lawyer. They said no merit, so that means they ain't raised no law. I do know that. He, he explained that to me. All my pills, I went through all of them. They said with no merit on my pills. No merit, no law. Andre's release from this hell is the result of a collaboration of so many people who came together on his behalf, starting with Andre, who never gave up because he knew the truth would one day come out. And his friend DeAndre Williams, who was the one who wrote to us, pleading for us to take his case on behalf of Andre, and then he himself dies in prison. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a cruel irony. So let's fast forward, Andre, to the day when you were actually freed and released and declared innocent by the courts. And, and I mean, it's 26 years, as Jerry said, you're a year in jail. We can't forget that. But 25 years in prison after your conviction. So, so talk about that day. You got your hearing and you were obviously there. Seem. I mean, you were his lawyer. So Yes, that day she kept on telling me. She kept on telling me, it ain't for sure yet. They knew the court date, but they wouldn't tell me, though. I, I knew I was coming home because I always told my brother no and my mother no and my daughter and my brother, I'll be home one day, bro. I don't know where I'm coming home. I know I didn't do it. I, I know I'm coming home one day and I know I'm going to be free. And I told them, I'm going to get exonerated one day. I always told them they won't find me not guilty. Going. They do remember I told you that. I just tell my brother that every time on the phone. Just send me money. Y'all ain't got to come and visit me. I'm all right. I used to tell them that. Just send me money. I'm going to be all right in there. And that's what I used to tell them. I was going through it, going through it. They knew I was all right. Y'all ain't got to spend all come and see me. I'm going to be all right. We told Andre, please keep this quiet, because we were explicitly told by the Conviction Review Unit that they were very worried that this would leak. And we said, look, we have to tell Andre, of course, we have to tell his family. And so we didn't have a particular day. And we said, Andre, do not tell anyone the prison. Meanwhile, I get a call from a corrections officer. And she said, Andre Hatchett is going around saying, you can't touch me. You can't touch me. I'm getting out. I'm getting out. And he's creating a lot of disturbance. So I said, oh, what is he doing? And she said, he's just telling people I'm getting out. And I'm thinking, how is that creating disturbance? And so she was describing it as he was being insubordinate when he's actually not. And then she whispers on the phone, is he getting out? And I couldn't say anything. And then my colleague said, well, you may want to actually tell her because she probably thinks he's crazy, thinking he's going to get out. And she doesn't actually know that he is. And so I said, Andre, didn't we discuss not to say anything? And he said, don't worry, I won't say anything no more. And I was like, what do you mean no more? You shouldn't have told. And he said, who was it? Is it that lady who's really nosy? Why is she all up in my business? So this was just, you know, a lot of excitement. He couldn't sleep the night before. He couldn't sleep the week before. And it was uh, supposed to be his first time on a plane. I think they were concerned, so they ended up bringing him on a bus because they were worried, what if he doesn't get on the plane? What if this doesn't happen? And so, you know, the Brooklyn Conviction Review Unit sent a couple of their star officers, I think someone they have nicknamed the Angel of Mercy, to go pick up Andre, bring him on a bus, and finally be on Freedom's doorstep. Yeah, because about a week and a half before he was getting ready to get out, I knew 
and he called me every night. What day it is? What days? I I couldn't tell him. I don't even think he slept the last week he was in jail. <laughs> I still can't sleep. <laughs> That's funny. I still can't sleep. It's so good to be free. Yeah, because you, you can't get that smile off your face. Oh, long he calls me. I always it's... smile at every picture I went to because I always tell him I'll be home one day. And you see my mugshot on picture. I smile since the day one I've been there. The police beat me up. If you get my um, um, DI report, I smile in everything. They, they could never rob him of his smile. You saw I the old, smile in the they, pictures. I was bloody, and I, I was bloody. My sister got pictures of me met to the day at her house that I sent home. Before they beat me up, saw me, I was smiling. So the day in, the, in court, 2016, is not that long ago, right? And even from your perspective, like, how, what did that mean to you? You'd worked on this case for years, right? And obviously you got to know Andre. He's such a lovely guy. His spirit is unbroken in spite of the fact that he's been through everything a human being can go through, like a Greek tragedy or something. So what was that day like for you, the exoneration day? I mean, the courtroom was packed. And what I loved about it is that the judge, when he looked at Andre, Andre stood up and you can see pictures being taken where people are sort of smiling. And then as Andre's speaking, there's bigger smiles. And as he continues to speak, the smiles get larger. And the judge was so moved himself, I think, that there was, you know, clapping throughout the courtroom before it even finished. And then the prosecutors came over to greet Andre and to hug Andre because they were just so appalled by this. When we presented the case to the Conviction Review Unit. We didn't even need to sit there for more than 20 minutes, if that, and we presented everything we discussed today, and they were deeply disturbed. They said, we're going to put this case on the fast track because they knew how concerning this case was. But that moment, I have to say, it. Andre was 25 years old when he was convicted of this crime. He was released one or two months before his 50th birthday. So he spent half his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. It's astonishing, and it's just so great that you're here and that you're you know getting your life back. And tell me about that now. Like, how what, what's going on now? What's your family situation? What are you doing day to day? I go to um to Federation Mental Health Center. I got what's that PTSD? PTSD right? Yeah, stress all my drama, what I went through, and my losses. You know, I can't never get it back. I think about it all the time, though. But that not to do. I got to live on, and I go every you know three days a week. And how are you living? Where are you living? Who are you living with? What's I, live your... with I live with my brother, Jerry, Jerry Hatchet. I talk to my kids, you know. How old are your kids? I got one, 33. Wow. One be 34, and Erica's like 29. Might as well shout them out. What are their names? Erica, Erica Love, Stakisha Love, Kristen Spears, Lil Andre, he passed away. Do you have any grandchildren? Yes. Wow. I got four grandkids. My son, the one passed away, I'm looking for his daughter. And I got four grandkids. My oldest is Joanne. He be 18. And I got my daughter, Erica, got two twins, a girl and a boy. I was asking Andre the names because all of them came, or most of them came to the exoneration. Yes. Yeah. And I said, what's this guy's name? And he said, Pookie. <laughs> Like, what's yeah. the other guy's name? He's Moo-moo. like, Moo Moo. Yeah. yeah, I don't so. know them. They're all new to me, you know? They, uh, all my grandkids is new. Everybody new to them. I'm getting to know them. So you got a big family. Yeah. You're surrounded by a lot of love now. 
sucked. I'm really stuck on thinking about this exoneration with like, so it sounds like these rolling waves of, of, of excitement and enthusiasm and clapping and smiling and just a celebration, right? We had to get the ceremonial courtroom because so many people wanted to attend. And it was, it was just a triumph. It's a triumph of Andre's spirit. It's a triumph of a man against a system. After the exoneration, we was leaving the court. Everybody was blowing in their cars. Remember, everybody was blowing as we was walking down the street because BBQs sponsored the exoneration. So everybody went to BBQs and they sponsored everybody food and everything. Wow, that's great. Andre, uh, we have a tradition here at Wrongful Conviction, which is that at the end of the show, I'd like to turn the microphone over to you for any final thoughts that you have, anything you want to share with the audience, just whatever's on your mind. Yeah, like I was saying, all the time, all the times, I'll be good to anybody. Anybody need a dollar or something, I'll give it to them. I don't care who you is. You know, my mother was raised like that. If you see somebody hungry, feed them. You know what I mean? I don't got to know you. I get, you know, I help anybody. I always been like that free hearted. My, my mother used to always tell me, you too free hearted. You help too many people. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. She used to always tell me that when I was a kid. You know, and then I... Then I went to, you know, I went to, went to prison for Sunday. I, I, you know, I, I, anything I do, I own up to. If I did it, I did it. That's me. I never lied to my mother or nobody. You know what I mean? I don't do that. I lie to people. And in the courtroom, Andre even said, I told everyone I didn't do this, and I told you I'd be coming home one day, yeah. and you did. I told everybody. I always tell my brother every day, my whole family, I'll be home one day. I'll be home one day. I didn't, I'll be home one day. I don't know when. I used to, he said, I'm coming to see you. I said, you ain't got to come to see me. I'm all right. You ain't got to um, drive, um, drive all the way up here to spend your money. Send it to me. You know, I'm all right. Just send me pictures. Just well, send me pictures. Well, all I can say to you is welcome home. Thank um, you. We're, we're glad you're here. And I like to, and I, can I think, and I like to thank Zima, Jason Craig, Barry Shaq, Liza, Natalie, believe in me, and, and you know, and, and help me. I, I thank you. And I'd like to also get any closing thoughts. Jerry, is there anything else you want to share? Because I know you went through this with your brother, your little brother. Like, it's got to be it's got to be hard on you, too. Yeah, it was. Being that I'm the oldest, and um, right after him, I had to deal with burying my brother that was coming back from Mexico and dealing with his situation, and then trying to keep an eye on my mother, dealing with his funeral, thinking about Andre, dealing with him, and looking out for my mother, so it was it was a lot just to try to for one person to try to deal with so so much stuff you know, but it, because I knew it was impossible, my mother knew, and before my mother passed away, she said, "Look out for Andre because God knows he didn't commit that crime." Seema, what about you? Uh, let's uh, we're going to give you the last word here. You shouldn't have to pull your hair out and kick and scream to get an innocent person out of prison in this country. And like Barry Sheck once said, our system is disabled by the impact of class, race, and money. If you are the right color, if you have money, if you're from the right socioeconomic status, you get better results from the system. If you're the wrong color and you're poor, you don't. And that is just a fact of life in our criminal justice system in the land of the free. I think there's a lot of innocent people in jail like me. I hear a lot of stories, a lot of stories. They ain't doing. I know there's a lot of innocent people in jail. I know it is. I'm one of them. There are, and we're going to keep fighting until our last breath to make sure that we get as many of them out as we can. So I just want to thank 
all of you for being here and sharing your story. Seema Safi, the senior staff attorney at the Innocence Project, thank you. Thank you. And Jerry Hatchett, older brother and protector. And, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming in and, and sharing your thoughts. Um, and Andre, what can I say, man? Just It's great to see you here, and we're just so happy you're home, and we're going to keep fighting, and that's all we can do. Thank you. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.